Welcome to the latest edition of the OmniTalk Spotlight series, where we discuss the technologies, the companies, and the people that we believe are shaping the evolution of retail. Today, we are coming to you again live from the Etel West trade show floor in Palm Springs, and we are brought to you by our beloved sponsors, Sezzle. Sezzle is the number one shopper-rated buy now, pay later option for e-commerce stores. Sezzle increases sales and order values by letting shoppers get the things they want now, but pay for them in four interest-free installments over the course of six weeks. Try Sezzle for free for 30 days. Visit get.sezzle.com slash etail. That's get.sezzle.com slash etail. Or if you're at the show, visit them at booth W30. Sezzle, engaging the next generation of buyers. And Stylytics. Stylytics is a scalable outfitting solution used by the biggest and best retailers in fashion. Stylytics delivers personalized and on-brand outfitting content, which increases the customer's basket size and creates a more compelling shopping experience. Find Stylytics here at the show at booth 711 or by visiting stylytics.com. That's S-T-Y-L-I-T-I-C-S dot com. And we are joined today by Stephen Tristan Young, the Chief Marketing Officer at Poshmark. Stephen, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me today. Yeah. Very excited to be here. You've been like on the circuit today, Stephen. You were <laughs> on stage earlier today. Now you're talking with us. We're really excited. How's detail been going for you so far? Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, so I said, I, I've not gone to a lot of these lately, especially since I've been enrolled for about a year and a half now. I really wanted to be intentional about which ones I go to where, one, I can find out about different vendor opportunities and new mar- marketing technology stacks that might be interesting, but two, to also be able to engage with others and share the knowledge. So in a fun setting also, which is nice and warm. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. Can't, <laughs> right, can't right, beat right. this. That's for sure. Where are you based now? So I'm based out of San Francisco. Francisco, okay. and our offices are actually in Redwood City, so it's in between Silicon Valley and San Francisco, which is fantastic because from a talent standpoint, uh, it allows us a lot more ability to sort of hire people from both areas. That's a great area too, South, more South Bay, yep. like best weather in the country in my opinion. Totally, but it's so there. difficult because I leave San Francisco cold, and I get there, I'm like, wait, suddenly it's warm. It's like <laughs> you do that commute every morning. I do it every oh, morning and evening. Wow, wow, wow. Well, tell us about your background because sure. when we were talking beforehand, you've got a really interesting background. And I personally always love when we get to hear that yeah. about our guests because it just puts them in a completely different light. So, sure. yeah, who are you? So, well, I'll tell you, if, if I rewind the tape, when I was in college, I, my original passion was actually politics. I really wanted to help save the world. So, I did a lot of stints working in different places. I worked at the White House. I worked on a presidential wow. campaign. I did the whole kid caboodle and realized this is not what I want to do. Uh, and I think that's what's amazing in college. You can do all the things that you think your heart wants, but then your mind's like, this isn't where you want to be. Yeah. So when I started thinking about what I really wanted to do, I said, I don't want to be an investment banker. I don't want to be a consultant. I don't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> so that left sort of like, hmm, well, I guess I'll have to be a marketer. <laughs> but I realized I also really love two things. I love technology and okay. I love consumer psychology. And so really saying, let me follow those two paths uh, brought me onto sort of this journey in the last 16 years, which honestly to me has been amazing because I, I get to do what I love. Mm-hmm. Apparently, I'm really good at it sometimes. Mm-hmm. I've had leaders tell me that. But three, it's also something that's evolved over the last 16, 17 years. Uh, when I came out, I worked at Puma as my first job, which was to help sort of reinvent the brand. And I really single-handedly got to see how you do that uh, from new product collections. They were really the first ones to pioneer like shoe, uh, retail uh, shoes as a fashion statement. Right. Uh, we actually created the first Jill Sanders shoe. 
which was super oh. hot at the time. Uh, and then we worked with Neil Barrett, former design, lead designer of Prada. So that got me. I was like, wait, I really like this. This is super amazing. But I knew that over the course of the next 10 to 15 years, I actually did this research where I looked at what CMOs were like. And I've always wanted to be a chief marketing officer. So I, you I looked at what, what What's yeah, the rubric for that look like? So I looked at all the different um, bio- biographies of different people. I noticed that some CMOs had been in the same company for 20 years. Others had jumped around, but in different industries. So I said, oh, I want to do that path. And so over the last several years, I've said, okay, I'm going to be at a company if I can learn something interesting, whether it's functional or learn something interesting, whether from other people. So I've, I've done basically two paths. I've been in large consumer marketing companies like American Express, DirecTV, and Puma, but I've also done three tech companies, both at different stages. Uh, the first one was Endurance, which was a small business web hosting company. Second was Grubhub and now Poshmark. And what I found, by the way, is that in the big companies, I learn a lot from the people, from the orgs. Okay. But I have very little impact. But in these high growth companies, I can take all those learnings and apply them and really help to scale teams, scale the business and be able to take all that cross-functional knowledge. People sometimes ask like, wow, like, were you super intentional? It's like, well, I had an idea where I was going, <laughs> but not really as much of a plan. But I did react as like, if it was interesting, if I could learn something new, I'd want to do the job. Yeah. Uh, but if it wasn't, it was not challenging, I'd be like, uh. I don't want to do it. Well, you can feel it. Yeah, we have a saying in Omnitize, actually, what we believe in, too, is is if you follow your interests, you'll always be interested. Exactly. And I always say, I want a job that has a 50% learning curve. Like, I don't want to know how to do it. I want to know part of it, because then it allows me to leave meetings going, hmm, didn't know that. And I always know that that's my North Star. If I leave something going, hmm, didn't know that, I've learned something new today Mm -hmm. that just fuels me for the next several years and also having something you're good at to fall back on too exactly and like i said what's been interesting in this journey is i've done everything from financial services to food delivery to now fashion and it just allows me to take a lot of the learnings from different places and apply it as much as i can well you're at poshmark now yeah tell us a little bit about that company and the listeners a little bit about that company sure so when i first joined i obviously i knew a little bit of what poshmark was just from the outside but i've learned so much more since i've joined it really is what we call a social commerce when you think about sort of like the nomenclature but we call it social shopping it's a community of over 60 million registered users 8 million sellers and people really buy and sell interacting with each other in a social way. And as I mentioned, and I don't know if you've heard this, but it, it's not Instagram with a buy button and it's not Amazon with a like button. It's something in between. Right. And it especially applies to a lot of Gen Z's and millennials who like to engage with each other in a way that isn't like a straight tra- e-commerce transaction. And that's what's fascinating, right? Like if you think about the fact that it's a social shopping platform, but it's also resale, that those are two dynamics that really have exploded probably in the last three to four years. And Poshmark was just perfectly positioned to sort of capitalize on that. And the company's been around for about eight, nine, eight, nine years now. So in the beginning, when social was just beginning to take off just as a part of our life, buying through a social network was not exactly what you were thinking about. But that takes time to build. And now it's really exploded in the way that we're finding people who actually want to engage that way. Right. And ask, hey, tell me about the style of your outfit. Why should I buy that? What's the size? And there's a little bit more of that interaction element. Well, and how people are able to connect in a way that they might not have before exactly. in that way. I mean, there was just an article in the New York Times not too long ago about um, you know how groups are being formed just yes. based on the fact that 
you you have a pair of jeans that I like, and why it's a very specific niche. But yes. you live in the same city as me, and like instead of just having it shipped to me, I'm going to yeah. go meet you in person, and then we start talking about I like your jeans has now turned into now I'm buying 16 things from your shop. Exactly. <laughs> there, there is, like I said, I, as I mentioned in the panel, there's like this is the fundamental need for people to connect. Yes. And I think that's one of those things that this platform allows. And if you notice, right, Facebook has been pushing groups, right, because even they recognize you can't just be in front of your Facebook app all day, people do want to connect offline because that then creates that interaction, that stickiness. Well, and do you think that there's also a little bit of validation in um, in purchasing too, if you have this connection with somebody? Yes. Because I feel like this is still, while you know this trend is on fire and re- the resale market is huge, yeah. I still feel like there's some kind of confidence or familiarity that, that your platform is giving people that give, allows them to kind of enter into this a little more simply than Definitely. just cold like thrift store shopping or yes. know, buying something blind on marketplace. Exactly. I, I sort of think that the resale just happens to be one element because we have a number of people who, by the way, have developed their own brands and now sell it exclusively on Poshmark. Right. So imagine that they said, oh, I could do Shopify and build a website and think about SEO and email, whereas here I can just open up a closet and be able to sell to people immediately and take the, you know, take the feedback and then evolve my product. So people often have not just sometimes physical stores in their own cities, but they will have a Poshmark closet storefront where they can actually engage with even more people. So they're platforming themselves. Yeah, I think that's another thing to really hit on too, is that, and you talked about this a little bit on stage today too, is how people are developing a business yes. on this platform. It's it's like, it's taken the old days of like, I sold Mary Kay door to door. And it's like, to me, I think it's not a... It, it's not gimmicky. This is yep. like an actual storefront that yes. people can open and use on your platform. Can you tell us a little bit about how so, that works? I'll tell you that that's the one thing when I, when I mentioned it's like, right, there's a social shopping element, there's a resale. There are, everyone's an entrepreneur in the platform. There are people who basically support themselves by selling on Poshmark. They make anywhere from several hundred thousand dollars a year to we have some people who actually sell a million dollars worth of clothing. Wow. And these are things that either they've sourced through thrift shops, so they've sourced through our wholesale or they've just gone through their own home to see what's available to sell. Yeah. And when I discovered so many of these people, and by the way, the stories of how we've helped people's lives uh, literally will bring you to tears. I, sure. I remember when I meet them at our posh parties, someone will be like, oh my gosh, thank you to Poshmark. You helped me, you helped support me through chemo. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Uh, and when you realize how much you actually touch that, their lives by selling, by creating this platform, it allows you to actually feel good at the end of the day and that what we're doing actually helps people. Now, it's different, say, than a gig economy, right? When you're driving that car, delivering that food, that's all you can do for that hour. Here, people can raise their kids while still selling on Poshmark, which allows them a lot more flexibility. So I think that's been, that's the magic part about the platform that not many people see, that as a CMO, I'm trying to figure out how do we elevate that, those stories? Because yeah. that's really one of the reasons why people stay on the platform and why, they're so, why it's so sticky. Well, that was going to be my question, too, as you were doing your background, because I know you mentioned you're, you're a, you, you love brands, you're a brand yeah. guy. We were talking about that before the podcast. What is it, especially in your role now, yeah. what is it about the brand that resonated with you to take the job? And, and, and now that you've been enrolled yeah. for a period of time, what is it that it's all about in its essence? So if I were to, I have the saying that I realized actually applies a lot more, and you'll probably see it. Um, you treat your customers the way you treat your employees, right? If you think about every place you've ever worked at, it usually quite aligns. And Poshmark treats its customers like they're 
the gold standard. Like we care about them, we look after them, and that's how we treat our employees. And that brand of love between both the customer as well as the employees and ourselves is what I discovered. I know it's not so strange, but our CEO Manish is, is fantastic. And you know, one of his um, core values for the company is, is centered on love. It's like when you give love to each other, love comes back. And it translates into this sort of element of connection, which then translates into monetization, right? So it's not, hey, let's monetize the person immediately. Let's figure out how do we get, how do we help them? How can, how does help each other? And when that permeates through, think about how if I could encapsulate that into a brand idea or strategy that I can share with others that feels accessible, that would be the holy grail. And that's, I think, what I have to do a lot of work on is mm -hmm. how do we take something that is fundamentally a transaction that has an emotional component and then platform that out. But the mm -hmm. team had already had done a fantastic job. I mean, the Poshmark brand as it stood is actually quite amazing mm -hmm. because it's been very organic. It's not prefabricated. It doesn't, it feels like the community helped build it. They are the brand. They are the brand. And that's, so if you even look at our, our TV ads, we're not using actors. We're using actually real people, real sellers, and having them share their testimonials. But in a way that doesn't feel like it's an infomercial, but it's someone saying, look how much money I made. Look how I, what I did for my family. And that's, a, that's sort of what we're trying to communicate as part of the brand. It's really interesting to me to hear you talk about that because even as entrepreneurs now, yeah. and you guys, in terms of your entrepreneur legacy, one plus one equals three when people are always helping and collaborating with each other. Yes. And what I found from going from big companies to now being entrepreneurs, just how willing people are to help you oh, yeah. Yeah. that are going through that same thing. And so you're playing on that ethos every day. Exactly. What you, do. you mentioned posh parties though. Yes. What is that? So posh parties are basically events that we throw around the country several times a month. And usually what we'll do is we'll bring together people who are local and invite them. So say Phoenix, uh, New York City. We try to go to places also where we see posh uh, communities beginning to develop. And we'll go and we'll throw an event that's about four or five hours. We have a whole team that does it. And we'll bring some seller stylists to basically similarly here be on stage to share with them. And then we'll have areas where people can have closet consultations or find out how do you style your outfits so you can sell it better. And by the way, this all then culminates into a yearly thing called Posh Fest, which this year we had our largest one. We had 1,600 people, by the way, fly there themselves, pay for themselves to be part of the community and hear Manish speak, hear what's on the roadmap for the platform, uh, hear also how to be a better influencer on the platform. It's, it's what I was saying. I mean, Airbnb does exactly the same thing. They're celebrating their sellers and their community in a way, in a forum that helps each other. Where was that? This year was in uh, Phoenix. It was amazing. The hometown. All right. So is there, are there teams that are coordinating these events? Yes. Or this is like the individuals themselves being like, we're going to rent a space. We're going to figure so out. So we have a team called uh, Community Development. And okay. they're actually the ones who help figure out where should we send our next posh party. And like I said, those are the ones that we throw. The posh and sips are the ones that our customers actually throw themselves. Okay. And if you go into our blog, you'll see people literally are having events all around the country, throwing it themselves and connecting with people on their own. Yeah. Which is great. It's the best kind of marketing you could have. Yeah. So I, I guess this is kind of a random question, yeah. but then does it make sense for you guys to start thinking about physical retail at all? If these things seem to be so successful and people are flying across the country and paying their own way, yeah. I mean, is that a consideration that Poshmark has right now or... So it's a really good question. I think it's something we're still thinking through. Uh, okay. We actually did a, a, a test partnership with Macy's a year ago, where I don't know if you saw, but they had a number of different native online brands. We did. Um, and we did five different the cities. The market at Macy's. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. And it was great. What's funny for us, by the way, is to hear the people that were showing up. We had a ton of posture show up, but a lot of them thought, oh, can I just buy this through the app? Like the concept of like, 
going to the cash register and actually right. paying for them. We're just like, wait, wait, that's that's orthogonal to what I'm here. Uh, but what we did is we actually found a number of posh sellers who, like I said, have their own brands and feature them at Mises. And for them, they were so happy because we allowed them to basically be in a physical retail store. Right. And for us, it was a good test to say, like, mm-hmm. if we want to do something similarly, do we partner with a larger company or do we do something on our own, which is what I know a lot of other um, D2C and tech companies are doing? Mm-hmm. Or do we find something completely different? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's like a once a year thing. I think we're still thinking of that because it is a huge investment. Mm-hmm. And for us right now, being the kind of peer-to-peer marketplace we are where you know, we want the technology to be a forefront, it's like a different way of looking. Now, it doesn't mean you can't have it happen mm-hmm. one day. Yeah, and the keyword I took from there is almost empowerment. Yes. You know, it's how do you empower them? Let's not go with the traditional mindset of like, it's a store, it's this or exactly. that. It's how do we empower what they need? And that's one thing that's the company, by the way, as I learned about the culture, we do very differently. It's not, hey, how do we do something that's one-off? How do we do something that's scalable that also helps the community altogether? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so the honeymoon's over too. So now it's 2020. What what is on your roadmap? So what are you thinking about? How are you advancing your job as you go forward? Uh, very good question. There's a couple of things I'm always thinking about. One, how do we continue to scale and build our channels and an ecosystem that's rapidly increasing in cost, but also privacy concerns are coming in. So data tracking mm-hmm. and measurement becomes a bit more difficult. So I feel like that's one of the areas that we'll be exploring this year to think through. How do we continue to scale and, and measure and monetize? Two, also, we've launched a number of new categories in the last year. So Poshmark has been known as a fashion brand. Yeah. But last year, we launched a home category, which is, by the way, a huge billion, like trillion dollar market yeah. uh, for people to be able to sell their home accessories on Poshmark. Uh, and we've also launched a number of other subcategories like wedding, prom. So for us, we're thinking through how do we now platform out these multiple different uh, sort of markets, as we call them, which are all mini communities inside the Poshmark app and think through how, do, you know, we're not just a fashion platform anymore. How do we rethink about our brand in a way that will be more encompassing? Or do we have a different way of thinking about it? Mm-hmm. That's two. And then number three is uh, we continue to think about international expansion and how do we bring Poshmark outside of the U.S. We launched Canada last year. We've got you know big plans to sort of launch several more countries in the coming years. And how do we scale that? Because you know a mm. posh party in the U.S. What would that look what like in dynamics? Canada? Yeah. So yeah. we're testing a lot of that right now and creating playbooks. And I think number four, the most important thing is continuing to involve the product platform. And that in the rise of other social apps like TikTok. Uh, you know, musically, et cetera, how do we incorporate some of the things that are really great about other emerging tech platforms mm-hmm. in the social space mm-hmm. into what we're doing so that we feel like we're evolving it and not just resting on our laurels? You took that question right out of my mouth. That was going to be my next question too. Like as Instagram yeah. or Facebook is, as others go after this social commerce idea with yes. their own twists, how do you effectively stay in front of them? So I think we're able to be nimble. Uh, we're able to be a lot faster sometimes and also think really far ahead. I mean, we look at Asia where social commerce is huge. Right, it's nowhere near where it is in the U.S. We look and say, what are they doing? What are the platforms that are evolving it from a product standpoint? How can we incorporate some of that here so that we can test and learn our way into it? Versus, you know, it's not a radical change; it's just an evolution of the platform. And that's, you know, for the last eight years, that's what they've built. And I think we're going to continue on that path as long as, like I said, we stick to the core of focusing on our sellers, making it easy for them to sell, figuring out how to drive more buying, so matching goods and services in a even more sort of AI thoughtfully driven way and three making the features themselves useful and innovative and fun because most of the time e-commerce is really kind of boring right (laughs) like put it in the cart press the buy button and hope for it to show up right if there's any left brain if there's anything that's 
interesting to it. I feel like if that's what people are, are there now, they want to hear more about the product they're about buying. They want to be more thoughtful. So we, we recently released a stat. Um, by the way, today, actually yesterday, we released our social commerce report. So you guys oh. check it out. But really, Not it's a way for that. us to also say what are the trends that we're seeing across our platform. Over 30% of our customers are Gen Z. Right, okay. like okay. nothing makes me happier than when I hear friends tell me, "That's amazing!" Oh my god, my son and my daughter love Poshmark, and they're already selling stuff on it. When you hear that, you know you're definitely on trend as far as the next thing. Because I, like I said, I, I think of this. Some of us are not the target audience right now. Right? right. Imagine what how we thought about Airbnb and Uber ten years ago. Sure. Like people said, I would never get in someone else's car. I would never live in someone else's home. Mm-hmm. It's the same people who said I would never order my food online. So I've I've been very fortunate that I've been joining companies that I feel like are ahead of a trend and if I can use marketing strategy and you know technology and metrics to help forward that behavior and create a category that's what excites me as a marketer and I feel like when I my last company that's what I saw over seven years was how people thought about food delivery in 2010 to what food delivery is now right it used to be an 80 billion dollar TAM in 2010 it became 260 by 2018 wow jeez right so if you think about what this space is, it's just resale of clothes right now, but it's a resale of everything in your home. So that's disrupting home goods, it's disrupting fashion, it's disrupting it's the size of the, the whole category. The, the auto industry. Category. Auto industry. So, <laughs> and even that you think about services, right? right? People are willing to sell, like, sell their services. So I feel like it's an amalgamation. It's, I actually really call it not the gig economy. We have a phrase we're playing around. It's the passion economy that we're able to kind of allow you to, to um, pursue mm. the passions you care about, whether it's fashion home goods in your life and be able to still make money off of it, which is fantastic. Get a paycheck from your passion. Yes, that's right. Well, Steven, this has been so fun. You're definitely one of the most exciting and interesting. I think it's my favorite interview of the show, to be honest. I really have enjoyed it. Um, We want to play a little game before we let you leave, if that's okay. It's called How Millennial Are You? And I think you'll probably do well, but... (laughs) We'll see. We'll ask you. Just yeah, yeah I already quick. set the bar high here with That's that last right. statement, so keep That's it moving. Right. Keep the momentum going. Okay, so first question is, when you're going to check out at the grocery store yeah. or convenience store, are you pulling out mobile wallet, cash, credit card, So I generally use card. a mobile wallet. Uh, Thank God. I Even coming from a credit card company, <laughs> uh, I still, I was already an early adopter of mobile payments a long time is, ago. What's the, what is that dynamic like between the credit card companies and like the mobile wallet companies? So it's a, it's like a love-hate relationship. Is it like the Jets yeah. and the Sharks? What do you guys yeah, like? American Express was actually super advanced on this. Like in t- 2013, we had things like the RFID payments that we actually then decommissioned. I was like, we should have just kept that on. <laughs> we were actually ahead. But I think that there's this notion that, you know, at least in my perspective, as more people use mobile payments, if you think about Asia, right? A credit card now no longer becomes the tool for an identity. Mm-hmm. It's just a set of numbers. So I think credit card companies are trying to figure out how do I became, how do I maintain relevance? So if you think about Chase Sapphire by creating um, a whole strategy around supporting your passion of travel. Mm-hmm. That's how you get to keep the card and even pay a 450 a year fee, which is pretty steep. Yeah. Most people never thought, a millennial would ever pay 450 for a card. Right. And I can tell you that a lot of consultants went awry on that recommendation. <laughs> um, if you, I kind of want to do this like a business school study one day because like someone definitely messed up on that one. Because <laughs> uh, there were enough people willing to pay for that. So for, I think for me, that's, I see that tension. Yeah. And it's only going to really put a lot of credit card companies in a very interesting situation that most people won't be using a, a physical card. And if they're not using a card, then 
how do you get reminded about the value of the car that you have every day? Right. So I think it comes in the form of services. Uh, I've never thought about that. Wow, that's that's that's. And you're not you don't get the you don't wow. get the I like think about that more the excitement and, and people seeing you. Pull yeah, what out is a the black value in the whole thing exactly. versus just the yeah. transaction? Yes. And then right. how do you continue to assign that value as the technologies evolve? Exactly. And, wow. and, and, okay. and the car that I worked Jesus. on, right? I worked this on True Card, which when I first joined Amex, we actually rolled out the first version of the titanium card, which was the metal card that now is ubiquitous. But before that took three years of product development to get a card rolled out that actually had a certain level of depth and weight and height so that when you plunk it down, it's like, I have a black card. Right. And people know that you have a black card. Exactly. And when I used to use mine to go buy gum, strangest, strangest experiences. <laughs> people were like, um, I have the card. I'm testing it out, but I'm just here to buy gum. I'm like, I'm not here to buy a bottle service. No big deal. I'm not here to just buy a house. Um, I joked, it's like having a superpower that you really can't use. Oh my People God. is like, I, I can't do anything with this, but you know, juicy fruit and black. Cards. There we go. That's what you get on Omni Talk. I, I love it. That's right. So I, I guess I'm a mobile, I'm a mobile payment person. Okay. Um, I, I'm also very curious how you answered this next question, which is in the last week, yeah. how many times have you ordered food or coffee or something from a mobile app? Oh, I mean, as someone who did food delivery, so yeah. I, I would actually say probably about 50%. 50%. Um, okay. I, use, I do a lot of pickup and, um, ordering that way just because it's more convenient so the order ahead which i think is going to be actually separate from delivery will be really the the way that most people will be ordering things right and starbucks has been fantastic on that obviously but the problem is their ecosystem is it's closed like you can't bring that anywhere else and as more and more companies or restaurants adopt the pickup ordering mechanism which is cheaper for them they keep more of their margins i feel like that's going to happen a lot more i mean starbucks really paved the way for that right we, we couldn't agree more yeah. right written about that a lot yep you start 100%. seeing those delivery fees trust me you start to ask mm-hmm. double. yeah and a lot of times it is more convenient for you as the consumer too, yes. depending on what the need state is and where you yeah. are mm-hmm. we did a lot of research on that but pickup is actually one of the most under tapped markets because everyone assumes you want the delivery to come to you but most people are actually picking up food on their way home from work right and so we tested a lot of crap on you know, we were doing a lot of uh, gas station advertising because guess what? That's where people are at right before they go home and right. say, order your food now. You pick it up in 20 minutes. Oh, That's interesting. why McDonald's have had drive throughs for decades, yes. right? Did you understand, by the way, uh, interesting set on that. Someone asked recently what's going to happen with McDonald's given that so much of the drive through is their business. But as more millennials and Gen Zs don't drive, as autonomous vehicles come through, how do you protect that revenue stream? I have no answer for that. <laughs> but, um, I, Steven, like, I oh. thought we were going to <laughs> no, have like, this. We'll have to have you back. Revolution. That's another good one. I was go. like, yeah. I, it's, that's why McDonald's, I think, was testing out Uber Eats to say, how do you drive this? Yeah. How do you capitalize on this market without having to build your own fleet? Because mm-hmm. now people want it to be brought to them, not to come to you. So, right. And making pickup spots, right? Yes. They now yep. have pickup spots. Okay, last question. If you could only use one social app, what would it be and why? Oh, gosh. That's, so that's really... <laughs> okay, so this is where I'll probably carbonate myself a little bit. Uh, I actually really like Facebook, mainly because just for three things. It's a low maintenance way for me to keep track of friends and family so I can see what's going on. It's a little bit more real than Instagram, which is, makes me feel better about myself. Uh, you get to read a lot more content. Okay. Which I think is important for me. Uh, seeing images, I know the power of images on Instagram, but it also, I can also see it's, the power it can have on your own self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard for me to just look at something that's visual. I want to really engage with people. But I said, I guess it's a fantastic way to just, it's a low maintenance way of keeping track of all your friends. Fair. And I love seeing what people are doing, seeing their families. Uh, but I, I, for me, if I could, what I, my guilty pleasure is TikTok. Uh, oh you can see Do you have a channel well, we as can a follow? Marketer, this is the first TikTok drop. Yeah, as a marketer, you have to be there. Like You yes. want to see yeah. what they're doing. And I've been showing, by the way, my friends. Um, 
like the TikTok compilations on YouTube, where uh, they have all these. It's easier way of digesting. Like, hey, what's the new trend right now? It's right. Like, and showing it to your friends, you're like, what are you doing? Why are you saying, I'm a marketer. I have to know what the next trend is and how do we communicate to them. I have the, by the, the funny story is that uh, my team are all a lot of young people and we're sitting in, in the, you know, my office area and they ask the joke, um, who here has a middle finger and a phone emoji as their name on their phone? And I'm like, oh, guys, that's me. Sorry about that. Um, they're like, why is your phone named? I was like, oh, well, don't you know that's how like Gen Zs communicate with each other. So I've sat in airports and had people randomly airdrop things to me because I thought I was 13 years old um, and fun stuff. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, <laughs> it's a good way to sort of oh test out and see what happens. Wow. But that's how they're communicating now, right? Yeah. They do a lot in airdropping. That's like dark social. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a trend that, you, you know, I'm asking my team to think about and saying, how do we communicate to yeah. an even younger audience in right. a way that's not typical? Because right. everything's evolving faster than we realize. Yeah. Man. Okay. Sorry. You win. Wow. That was awesome, man. I, (laughs) the reason I love this job and I think Ann does too, I don't want to speak for her, but like when we do it well, we learn something. And there was multiple times during the course of that interview when I learned something or there was some concept brought up that I had not thought about. So I can't thank you enough for sitting down with us today. That was, that was amazing. And like like I said, and I think this is probably my favorite interview from the show, if not one of my favorites of the year so far. So although it's early, but no, (laughs) but it's been a good one. But again, give me the- two drinks. We'll even, uh, give an hour <laughs> exactly. Yeah, hopefully we can do it again sometime. But again, everyone listening, Stephen Tristan Young, the chief marketing officer at Posh- Poshmark. Thanks so much to our sponsors, Sezzle and Stylytics. And as always, be careful out there. <laughs>